We're going to be turning now to uh, a reading from uh, John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4. It's on page 1227 in the Bibles that are in front of you in the pews. We're going to be reading from 1 John verse 7 through to verse 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God has showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in, he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Thank you, Chris. Uh, good morning, everybody. Will you join me, please, in uh, prayer? Our Father, we pray this morning that you might be pleased to reveal to us afresh your amazing, wonderful love. By the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you give us understanding of your word, and would you help us, please, to respond in faith, in love, for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as uh, Ruth has said, uh, we start this new term with a thematic series entitled Enjoying the Trinity. Uh, I want to stress at the outset, the series title is not Explaining the Trinity. Uh, that, I suggest, will be somewhat less enjoyable uh, for preacher and hearer alike. So we're taking it as read that Christians worship the three-in-one God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And to those who might object that the term Trinity is never used in the Bible, my short answer is while that is true, the Bible is unashamedly Trinitarian from Genesis through to Revelation. So the first line of the first book of the Bible reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The second line introduces the Spirit of God who was hovering over the waters. And then John in the opening line of his gospel adds this detail. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the Son of God, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit worked together to create the heavens and the earth. And the three persons of the Trinity work together in salvation too. Uh, turn with me, please, if you have a Bible, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, it's on page 1199 if you're in a church Bible. Page 1199, Titus chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul describes our natural state until we put our trust in Jesus for salvation. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So who saved us? God, our Savior, the Father. End of verse 5, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. How did he save us? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom, verse 6, he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So who saved us? Jesus Christ our Savior. But hold on, didn't Paul just write God is our Savior? Yes. But now he's saying Jesus Christ is our Savior. Yes. God the Father saved us by God the Spirit through God the Son. So I trust it will come as no surprise then that this is the first message in a series of three. If that is a surprise, I can only think you've already nodded off for a couple of minutes. Uh, but in all seriousness, when I listen to preaching, I actually find it harder to stay focused when, like today, we're not rooted in a single Bible passage. I'm going to try and help us with a simple and hopefully clear structure. If I fail uh, and you still lose focus, well, please remember Jephthah from a couple of Sundays ago. Like him, I tried my best. So as we think about enjoying the Father who loves us, let's ask three simple questions. First, why do Christians call God Father? Secondly, what is the Father's love like? And thirdly, how should we respond to his love? First then, why do Christians call God Father? I can't dwell long here, so the simple answer is because our Savior Jesus taught us to. You remember, maybe remember last term we looked at the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray, says Jesus, our Father in heaven. And this is one of the great privileges of Christian faith. Those who trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we get to address God as our Father. But someone might object, well, hold on, aren't we all God's children? And the answer is yes and no, but mainly no. So when Paul preaches the gospel in Athens, Acts 17, he says God is not far from every, any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, God, we are his offspring. So yes, in that indiscriminate sense, we are all God's offspring because he's the creator and sustainer of everyone. In a much more important relational sense, though, not one of us here is a child of God by nature. By nature, we all belong to the kingdom of darkness. And the route to having God as our Father is exclusively by divine adoption. 
As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, in love he, the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And women and girls, for reasons I don't have time to go into this morning, you need to embrace being adopted sons too. But please believe it's great news because it means God gives you all the birthrights of sons. And if you're still feeling it's a bit of a raw deal, I can see some of you are, spare a thought for the boys and men. We have to embrace being the bride of Christ. I think that makes us equal, don't you? (laughs) Now, for some of us, I know that this whole idea of addressing and relating to God as Father is incredibly difficult, very painful, because we find it hard to distinguish between God as our Father and our less than perfect experience of a human father. Some of you can't help but think this morning of an absent father, an angry father, an abusive father, an alcoholic father. But my prayer for you would be, despite the terrible memories you have and perhaps the scars you still bear today, that you would let God graciously reveal himself to you as the father without fault who loves his children perfectly and consistently. That may involve a season of prayer or the ongoing wise counsel of others. It may be a painful journey for you. But let me say it will be worth it. Because the love of our Father in heaven is infinitely far removed from the most bitter experience of a human father. And indeed, infinitely more wonderful than the very best human father imaginable. Which brings us to our second question. What is the Father's love like? Well, at the risk of sounding flippant, one way to answer that question is with another. How long have you got? Because we're thinking here about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the infinite creator and sustainer of the whole universe. Let me tell you how long I've got. 25 minutes in total. So inevitably, I have to be selective this morning. And for some reason, as I was thinking and praying about which aspects of the Father's love to focus on, I came overall Baptist and ended up with four E's. Bear with me. First then, the Father's love is eternal When we talk about God being eternal, it means something much greater than simply the duration of his existence. God as an eternal being means he is self-existent, without beginning, deriving everything that he is from himself. Uh, Theologian Herman Bavinck puts it neatly like this, God is whatever he is by his own self or of his own self. Uh, So when we read, as we did earlier in uh, 1 John, God is love, John means God is and always has been love. He didn't learn to love or become loving or decide to love. No, God is eternal, so his love is eternal. Before God created anyone or anything, he is love. So if you've ever thought to yourself like the rock band Foreigner in their 1984 power ballad, I want to know what love is, and I've had that song running around in my head all week. (laughs) Well, you need to look look no further than God's self-revelation in the Bible, because God is love. Now, it's easy to go wrong at this point and think that John means God equals love. But no, because if God equals love, well, then love equals God. And people then make the mistake of looking at how our culture defines love and say, well, that must be what God is like. So God won't possibly exclude anyone from heaven, will he? Because he's love and that wouldn't be a loving thing to do, people say. But God is not a prisoner to human definitions or expectations of love. Love does not equal God. God, by his eternal nature, defines what love is. More than that, God is not only love. He is many other things too. And his various different attributes don't operate independently of each other. 
So, for example, God is holy. That word can mean set apart from everyone and everything else. It can also mean morally perfect. But God doesn't stop being love in order to be holy. No, he is always love and he is always holy. So his love is a holy love, set apart from any other kind of love, morally pure. And his holiness is a loving holiness. Now you may be wondering, why on earth does it matter that God's love is eternal? Well, because most of us will be familiar with John 3.16, God so loved the world. But some of us may be less familiar with the truth that God's love for the world, and in particular for his adopted children, was preceded by and is an overflow of his eternal love for another. Listen to the words of Jesus in what's often called his high priestly prayer. John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, listen to this, because you loved me, before the creation of the world. So before God made the world, the eternal love of the Father was already being lavished on the eternal Son of God. It's really hard for us finite creatures to get our heads around that, but even so, it is gloriously and mysteriously true. That's why so often you see Christians described in the New Testament as those who are in Christ or united to him. Because it is only in Christ that the same eternal love of the Father is lavished on us too. In and of ourselves, we know, don't we, there isn't much that's lovable about us. By nature, we all rebel against God, ignore him, disobey him, often live our lives as if he didn't even exist. But because God the Father loved God the Son before the creation of the world, and because when the eternal Son of God entered the world as a man, he lived a blameless, spotless life, and then died a sacrificial death in our place on the cross, Well, so those trusting in Jesus are now undeserving beneficiaries of that eternal love the Father's always had for the Son. It is only in him that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Which brings us on to a second aspect of the Father's love. It is undeniably extravagant. We've seen in Titus 3 how God poured out on us generously the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Uh, Please turn back now to 1 John 4, 1 John 4, page 1227 in the church Bibles. In fact, just uh, look back quickly to 1 John 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And then chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Think about that phrase. He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you want to know what love is as demonstrated by the Father? Love is to give up, to sacrifice what is most precious to you. The love of the Father is extravagant because it involves him giving his eternal beloved Son the focus of his eternal love and doing this to generously extend the scope of that eternal love to a people utterly unworthy and undeserving of such love. That's you and me. Those of you who are parents, can you imagine a scenario where you would willingly give up your beloved child in order to save the life of another? Are there any circumstances whatsoever where you would give your son or daughter's life in exchange for the life of someone else? 
Oh, if there's someone in question were a defenseless baby, I, I'm sure you'd be moved to compassion. But give up your child's life in order to save that baby? No way. So how about if the other in question were the most terrible, objectionable, ungrateful, sinful man or woman imaginable? Never going to happen. You see, writes Paul to the Romans, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, my brothers and sisters, is extravagant love. We should be bowled over by it and overflowing with gratitude. The love of the Father is eternal, extravagant, and thirdly, everlasting. Now, I realize that if God's love is eternal, then it must, by definition, be everlasting. But what I'm trying to capture here is something that runs like a thread through the whole of Scripture, and that is the unceasing nature of the Father's love for us, the love that simply never gives up on his children, even when we rebel against, resist, or run from that love. Uh, I recently read through um, Lamentations, uh, which is not the most uplifting book in the Bible, I have to say. Uh, it's a reflection on the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, the superpower of the day, when God's people rejected from the promised land because of their consistent failure to take God and his word seriously. But in chapter 3, verse 22, this ray of sunshine bursts into the darkness of lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And if we had more time, I'd love to lead you on a grand biblical tour of God's everlasting love. Jeremiah in his prophecy sums it up like this. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. And some of us here this morning or at home, we have known and we could testify to the Father's everlasting love and unfailing kindness over decades in some cases for more years than I've even been alive. Paul tells Christians in Rome, he's convinced, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we're not Pentecostals, but I think that does need an amen. Is that not amazing? It's amazing truth. And in a world where you can be defriended by your social network at the click of a button, rejected as a potential lover or partner with the swipe of an app, even jilted at the altar by the love of your life, where not even marriage is guaranteed to last. You know, I think many of our friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, maybe even some of us here this morning, we are ripe for the everlasting love of the Father to be lavished on us in Christ. Well, my finally is a catch-all heading, a recognition that it's impossible to grasp the full extent of the Father's love, even if we had a whole series on it, because it is exhaustive, exhaustive in the sense of being fully comprehensive, not lacking in any positive aspect imaginable, which is unsurprising because remember, God is love. So Psalm 36, the Father's love reaches to the heavens, it's priceless, unfailing. 
1 Corinthians 13, his love is patient, kind, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, it never fails. Ephesians 2, his love forgives, gives life, promises eternal glory. Luke 15, the father's love rejoices, celebrates, restores when a rebel child comes home. Oh, no wonder Jude urges us to keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. You know, in a world where everything is temporary, where even the very best human love is unreliable and deeply flawed, why would you want to step outside of the Father's love? No, be wise. Keep yourselves in God's love. Which brings us to our final question. How should we respond to the Father's love? First, love and enjoy him wholeheartedly. Some here might feel a little uncomfortable with the series title, Enjoying the Trinity, especially if you're more used to thinking of God as creator, ruler, judge, all of which he is, of course. But you might push back saying, well, shouldn't we be obeying the Trinity or honoring the Trinity? And the answer is yes. But to New Testament Christians, God reveals himself as our Father. And just as a toddler laughs with sheer joy as his dad throws him up into the air and hopefully catches him again, well, you know, so we as Christians, we're meant to richly enjoy and treasure our relationship with the Father who loves us. Earlier generations of Christians understood this better than we do. So question one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in the 1600s, asks, what is the chief end of man? In modern English, what is the main purpose of mankind? answer man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever and God often uses the language of enjoyment to describe how we should relate to him Psalm 34 verse 8 taste and see that's an enjoyment word isn't it taste and see that the Lord is good Psalm 37 verse 4 take delight in the Lord be happy in your relationship with him Nehemiah 8 verse 10 the joy of the Lord is your strength Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Now I will only enjoy the love of the Father if I'm fully committed to him. Idols are always joy sapping and ultimately joy destroying. So if I allow anyone or anything else to occupy the roped off VIP area that is the throne of my heart, I simply will not enjoy him. Writes David in Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. Rather like the rich young ruler before Jesus who became very sad because he loved money more than he treasured God. Oh, let's learn from Jesus, our elder brother, who has eternally enjoyed the Father's love. He says the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. The Father's love for you and me is extravagant. He gave what was most precious to him. So surely as Isaac Watts puts it so brilliantly, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. This May I celebrated 30 years of Christian faith and it caused me to reflect on how many of my 10,950 days as a believer, yes, I, I couldn't, resist doing the calculation. But it caused me to reflect how many of those days have actually been marked out by wholehearted devotion to the Lord. 
And the tragic reality, I concluded, is not nearly enough. Because, you know, I've been far too slow to learn that the love of the Father for his treasured possession is a jealous love. Not a fly-off-the-handle, controlling, unhealthy jealousy, but the jealous love of the perfect lover of my soul. The one who genuinely knows what's best for me and what will bring me joy. So is not willing to share my deepest affections and longings with anyone or anything else. And you know, such is the Father's steadfast love for all his children. That over time, he patiently and gently works to root out the idols from our hearts. This divine heart surgery can be slow and painful. But each time I let go of another idol, joy and delight will grow and deepen, be assured. As Jesus says, whoever loses his life will find it. Sometimes joy will increase dramatically as a major idol is put to death. Other times, joy grows imperceptibly. As I just loosen my grip on some of those less obvious things or people I cling to, my time, my personal comfort, my appearance, my possessions and financial resources, my children, my spouse, my desire for recognition, my pride. It's also vital to devote time to growing my relationship with the Father. Healthy relationships thrive, don't they, on good and vibrant communication and also simply spending time together. We know that, don't we? Husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, parents and children, a group of friends. And the relationship with our Heavenly Father is no different. If you really want your love for Him and enjoyment of Him to grow, it will only happen as you set aside quality time to talk with Him, to listen to His Word, to praise and worship Him, to confess your sins, sometimes just to be still and consciously enjoy His presence, bask in the glory of His fatherly love. Finally, the second way to respond to the Father's love is to love and serve others joyfully. If you've still got one John open, please look back at the second half of chapter 3. I'm just going to read a few verses from verse 16 of chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. When we uh, think about loving other Christians, our brothers and sisters, we often allow our minds, I think, to be shaped by cultural definitions of love. So I might imagine I need to have a warm, gooey feeling for my brothers and sisters in the pit of my stomach. But let me say that is much more likely to be the result of eating a dodgy Domino's. Other dodgy pizzas are available. Now with certain brothers and sisters, it's true, I may feel a deep affection and a certain affinity, and that's great when it happens. But whether we feel that or not, we are still commanded to love them as an overflow of the Father's love for us. And John's point here is that the Father's love is a very practical love that responds to our needs. A love that involves sending his most precious eternal son to provide for our greatest of all needs, forgiveness. The son who then demonstrated his love by willingly laying down his life to reconcile us to the father. And so we too are to love our brothers and sisters in practical ways. By willingly and joyfully laying down our lives for them in the sense of serving them sacrificially. Sharing what is most precious to us. Our time perhaps, our possessions and money our practical skills, using the spiritual gifts the Father has entrusted to us to build up and encourage others, welcoming into our homes and families 
those perhaps who don't have families of their own. Let me say that doesn't have to mean cooking a master chef meal. A cup of coffee and a piece of cake is fine. And Mr. Kipling still makes exceedingly good cakes. You don't even need to bake. And you know, practical love like that demonstrated in the Christian community is transformative and highly infectious. But only when it flows from the Father's love for us and our enjoyment of him. And I've become personally convinced, not least through past burnouts, that effective ministry to others will always be an overflow of our own relationship of love with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know, importantly, this kind of sacrificial service of others has a powerful evangelistic impact too. By this, says Jesus, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another.